Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray together, folks. Father, now, as we get ready for your word, oh God, would you prepare us to hear it? Humble us, give us teachable hearts, teachable minds, so that we would be changed and transformed by your precious, wonderful, life-giving word. Father, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to come and worship you. Even though there are many in this city who are unable to gather today, we are so honored and so privileged to have this opportunity. Father, we also pray for our fellow brothers and sisters who are unable to join us this afternoon. Lord, how we miss them and how we pray for them. We ask, though, that even in their absence, we can remember them. And as we come together as a gathered body, would you help us to learn what it is you want us to learn today? Father, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, folks, let me ask you this question. Have you ever had this experience? Have you ever experienced thinking that you really knew someone only to find out that you really didn't know them at all? Anyone here ever have that experience before? You feel like you really know someone, you're, you really get them, you're very close and intimate, only to be shocked to find out that this person who you thought you knew so well is a practical stranger to you. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, friends of friends, acquaintances, coworkers, or that neighbor who lives across the street. I'm not talking about, like, you know, that, that, that familiar stranger or acquaintances that we all might have, those people that we have superficial relationship. I'm talking about people who you deeply love, people who deeply love you, people who you've known for years, maybe even decades. Have you ever had a situation where someone like that in your life where you thought you really knew so well, only to be shocked to discover that you really didn't know them at all. We see these kinds of shocking revelations happening all the time in some of the most intimate relationships that we can have. For example, consider marriage. Every year, close to 2.3 million Americans get married. Every year. And studies go on to tell us that over close to, <clears throat> close to half of those marriages that end up happening will eventually end a divorce. And the number one reason... Irreconcilable differences, right? Number one reason for divorce in America, irreconcilable difference, which practically means what? It means husband and wife no longer feel like they get each other because they feel like they don't know each other, right? Or how about parenting? Hmm? 
How many times do we hear parents hearing the misbehavior of their children and their typical mantra is something like, my baby would never do something like that. My child would never do something so sinister. They would never do anything bad. You know, they go get called to the principal's office. They get called to the mall by the police. And they hear what their child has done. Like, my child would never do something like that. My Robbie would never hit somebody. Or my Michelle would never be that kind of person. Only to be shocked when they finally see the video footage. We live in a world where people are discovering that some of the people that they think they know best ends up becoming people they hardly know at all. And interestingly, we see the same kind of dynamic between Christians and God. Christians and God. There are many Christians who are in the church today who think they really know who their God is. They think they really know Jesus. But when push comes to shove, they are shocked to discover by some revelation that they hardly know Jesus at all. And one particular individual who fits this profile is the person that Jesus speaks of in our passage today, John the Baptist. We're continuing our annual sermon series entitled Grow Up. And the purpose of this series is to look at the various characteristics that God calls his people to embody in order for them to be a blessing to the world. And today we come to the characteristic known as outward compassion. Or being outwardly compassionate, okay? And to study this characteristic, we're going to study a particular interaction that Jesus had with John the Baptist, okay? And my hope is is that as we study this interaction, we will avoid the mistake that John the Baptist made about Jesus, a mistake that is still being done by so many Christians today. Namely, they think they know who Jesus is when in fact they hardly know him at all. So with that in mind, three things I want to share with you this afternoon. First, I want to talk about the narrow-mindedness of John the Baptist. Number two, the reasons for his narrow-mindedness. And finally, some practical lessons we learn from his narrow-mindedness. The narrow-mindedness of John the Baptist, the reason for his narrow-mindedness, and some practical lessons we can learn from it. First, the narrow-mindedness of John the Baptist. Now, for those of you here who are not too familiar who John the Baptist was, let me give you a brief biography about who this man was. John the Baptist was born a few months prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. And it turns out that he was also related to Jesus. He was Jesus' first cousin. And the all likelihood is John and Jesus grew up together as a close-knit family. You see, in the ancient world, extended families didn't live thousands of miles away like we do today in our culture. No, in the ancient world, extended families tend to live very close to one another, which means they grew up together. And the all likelihood is John and Jesus knew each other even from birth, which is simply another way of saying that John grew up with Jesus because they were family, okay? Another fact that would be important to know about John is that from a very young age, he was utterly, radically devoted to God. From a very young age, this man was truly, truly devoted to the Lord. Listen to what it says about him in Luke chapter 1, verse 80. And the child, John the Baptist, grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. In other words, even from a very young age, John was utterly sold out for God. I mean, this guy was so radical that even prior to his teenage years, he was living out in the wilderness so he could avoid the kind of infectious influence of the corrupted city so that he could maintain a singular radical focus on God and God's agenda. Now, as you're hearing all of this, you may come to the conclusion that John was a very unique, very special, very set-apart individual in such a way that no one else in the Bible could really compare to. And you would be absolutely right to think that way because even Jesus himself says as much in our passage. Listen to what he says again in verse 11. Truly I, Jesus, say to you, 
Among those born of women, there was risen no one greater than John the Baptist. There was something unique, something special, something so set apart about John that even some of the great characters in the Bible, like Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, David, could not really compare in terms of the stature that he had before God. And the question is, why? What is it about John that made him so unique, so special, so set apart? Well, listen to what one Bible scholar says by the name of Tom Constable. This is what he says in his commentary. He says, Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest human being because he served as the immediate forerunner of the Messiah. This was a ministry no other prophet enjoyed. In other words, John the Baptist was given the unique unrepeatable opportunity of publicly revealing who the Messiah was, who the Savior of the world was. That was John the Baptist. And it was epitomized when John actually baptized his cousin, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, in the Jordan River. No other prophet, no other king, no other priest had this kind of privilege than just John. So, with all these facts in mind, you could easily and justifiably say, That if there was anyone in all of reality who could genuinely say, I really know Jesus, I mean, I know Jesus the best, it would have been John. It would have been John the Baptist. Because first of all, he grew up with Jesus. He was related to him. He was radically devoted to God at a very young age. And he was given the unique and unrepeatable ministry of proclaiming who the Messiah, who the Savior of the world was. Which is why it's utterly astounding When we look in our passage that John actually asked Jesus this question in verse 2. What did he say? Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Or as one translation puts it, are you really the Messiah or is there really another true Messiah coming after you? By asking this question, John the Baptist has just revealed to Jesus and to us that he really has no idea who Jesus really is, right? By asking this question, John has just revealed that he is suddenly uncertain about who Jesus is and what he's really about. He is so unsure of himself when prior to this, he was so sure that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And the question is why? Why all of a sudden was John so doubtful, so unsure? Why was he so skeptical about Jesus? Well, our passage tells us in verse 2. Let's read it again. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Apparently, John was hearing things about Jesus that he was not expecting to hear. John was hearing things about Jesus that didn't comport to what he thought Jesus was about and what Jesus was supposed to do and what Jesus was supposed to be. Here's the question. What was John hearing that made him all of a sudden realize, I don't know this Jesus What was he hearing that made him feel so unsure that he really felt he knew Jesus as well as he did before? Well, verse 4 and 5, it tells us. Read it again. Go and, this is Jesus talking, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. John thought he really knew Jesus. John really, really believed that he knew Jesus in his heart of hearts. But when he started hearing about Jesus visiting the poor, healing the sick, ministering to the forgotten and the oppressed, all of a sudden he heard of a Jesus that he did not recognize. Because in his mind, 
Jesus would not be interested, let alone prioritizing acts of mercy, acts of justice. In his mind, Jesus would be doing something else like ushering God's kingdom where he would judge the whole world and saving his people from their enemies like the Roman Empire. You see, John the Baptist had a narrow-minded view when it came to Jesus. John thought that the only thing Jesus cared about and therefore what Jesus was only about was bringing God's judgment of sin into the world and saving his people from that judgment. That is exactly what John thought. That was the... That was the image of of Jesus that he had in his mind. And sad to say, many Christians today are making the same mistake by having the same narrow-mindedness of John the Baptist. Because there are some Christians out there in the church, Christians who grew up around Jesus like John, Christians who are devoted to God like John was, who also think they know Jesus, but they really don't. Because like John, they think showing outward compassion like visiting the homeless, feeding the hungry, ministering to the poor and the sick is something that Jesus would simply not care about. That it would simply not be on his agenda. No, in their minds, the only thing Jesus cares about is saving people from the coming judgment of sin. Very similar to how John viewed Jesus. In his book, Generous Justice, Pastor Tim Keller recounts of an incident that happened in his church where he met a church leader who had the same narrow-mindedness that John the Baptist did. Listen to what he says in his book. Quote, when I was a young pastor at my first church in Virginia, a single mother with four children began attending our services. It became very clear quickly that she had severe financial problems. So the deacons visited her and offered to give her church funds for several months to help her pay off outstanding bills. Three months later, it came out that instead of paying her bills, she spent the money on sweets and junk food, had gone out to restaurants with her family multiple times, and had bought each child a new bike. Not a single bill had been paid, and she needed more money. One of the deacons was furious. No way do we give her more money. This is the reason that she's poor. She's irresponsible, driven by her impulses. That was God's money, and she wasted it. I countered with some passages from the Bible on doing justice for the fatherless and the needy. But that's the Old Testament, he said. He argued today it's the Christian's job to spread the good news about Jesus. Quote, Christians should not be concerned about poverty and social conditions, but about saving souls. Here is a Christian leader, not just a Christian, but a Christian leader who has the same narrow-minded view of Jesus that John the Baptist had. It's the narrow-minded that says God does not care about us being outwardly compassionate. He doesn't care about us serving the poor and getting justice for the oppressed. No, the only thing God cares about is saving souls. Making sure people don't get sent to hell. Instead, go to heaven. That is what Jesus is all about. And yet, Jesus shows us in this passage... That is so not true, which I'm going to explain in my next point. But before I go to that next point, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that so many genuine believers of God have this narrow-mindedness? Why do so many Christians genuinely agree with John and this deacon here in this story by Tim Keller? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to look at the reason for John's narrow-mindedness, which leads me to my next point the reason for his narrow-mindedness. Now, you may have noticed that in verse 2, John is in prison when he hears 
about Jesus doing all these acts of mercy and justice. And you're probably wondering, why is John in prison? Well, if you knew the background story, you would know that John is in prison because a government official by the name of Herod Antipas put him in prison. Why? Because John publicly humiliated him by rebuking him for marrying his sister-in-law. Herod Antipas married his brother's wife, which according to Jewish law was very wrong, evil, and scandalous. And John called him out on it publicly, humiliating him and his new bride. And so out of vindictiveness, Herod had him put in prison, which also meant John was awaiting execution. Now let me ask you this. If you were in John's shoes at that moment, in this dungy, smelly, dirty prison, knowing that your death is imminent, what are you going to be thinking in that situation? I'll tell you what you'll be thinking. You'll be thinking, somebody save me, right? You'll be thinking, man, I need someone to rescue me from this condemnation of death. I need someone to get me out of here, right? And no doubt John was thinking that his good old cousin, the savior of the world, would come because in his mind that is what Jesus is about. Jesus has come to set the prisoners free. He has come to save those who are condemned to death, right? That was his vision of what John was about, and yet read again what Jesus says in reply to John through John's disciples. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, John, you're absolutely right. I'm all about and I'm only about saving people from condemnation of death. Hang in there, buddy. I'm coming. Right? Nor does he say, John, you're wrong. I could care less about your condemnation and your, your death sentence. Suck it up. What does he say instead? He says, John, I have come to minister to the poor. I have come to feed the homeless. I have come to heal the sick. I have come to be Outwardly compassionate. Now, what is Jesus trying to tell John, and what is he really trying to tell all of us in here? He's trying to tell us that the salvation he came to bring is so much more than just being saved from the condemning death. Okay? Jesus' salvation is more than him forgiving us of our sins and giving us eternal life. Or setting us free from the condemnation of death. You see, when the Bible speaks of, quote-unquote, being saved... It actually speaks of it in two ways, okay? There is salvation from condemnation and death. And there is also salvation for blessings in the form of good works. Let me say that again. When the Bible speaks of being saved, it speaks of it in two ways. There is salvation from condemnation and death. But there is also salvation for blessings, like in the form of good works. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the salvation that we have through Jesus' death on the cross. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Notice how Paul describes God's salvation for us through his son Jesus Christ. First, We are saved from God's condemning wrath, going to hell after we die, through the gift of faith, verses 8 through 9. But second, we are also saved, in verse 10, for good works, so that we can be a blessing to others, namely the poor, the hungry, the forgotten, and the oppressed. But the problem is, 
so many Christians only focus on what Jesus saved us from that they completely ignore what Jesus saved us for. One more time. Many Christians only focus on what Jesus saved us from and they completely ignore what Jesus saved us for. Okay. Now the question is, why do so many Christians do this? Why do they only focus on what Jesus saved us from, eternal death and hell, and completely ignore what Jesus saved us for, outward compassion? Well, maybe I can best explain through this illustration. Just ignore the, the, the leak. We'll get it fixed. Um, but let me use this illustration to see if it can help clear it out. When you guys stay at a hotel, do you guys really go out of your way to clean up the mess in your hotel room? Or do you really go out of your way to fix whatever's broken in your room? Huh? Anyone in here? Do you really go out of your way to pick up after yourself or to fix anything that you find broken in your room? Probably not. You could probably care less. Why? Because it's a hotel room, right? It is not your home, which is simply another way of saying all that is messy in your room, all that is broken in your room is not your problem. It's not your responsibility as far as you're concerned. That's more the concern of the hotel staff, right? This is not your home. And so you're not going to go out of your way. You're not going to lift a finger. You're not going to worry about anything. You're not going to do anything when it comes to dealing with the mess and the problems that are there in that room. And many Christians think that this earth that they live in isn't their home. Instead, they see the earth and their time on it as kind of like this massive bioterrestrial cosmic hotel room that they're just staying in until they get to their true home after they die, namely heaven. Right? All, you know, this earth is going to, you know, be blown up. It's going to disappear. And it's not my responsibility what's going on with it. It's not my home. My real home is in heaven. That's when I'll worry about the problems and the mess, which ironically, there is no problem mess. That's why it's heaven. Right? And here's another problem with that thinking. When you look at how the Bible describes the Christian's home, it doesn't describe it as simply heaven. If you read Revelation 21, which is the second to last chapter in the book of Revelation, when the apostle John is describing the Christian's home, you know how he describes the Christian's home? He calls it the new heavens and the new earth. When John speaks of the Christian's ultimate home, he doesn't call it the new heavens and that's it. He calls it the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, when you read that chapter and you read how John is describing what's going to happen at the end of the world when Jesus comes back, what does he see? He sees heaven coming down on earth, where heaven and earth come together as the final resting place for God and all of his people. That is yours and mine's our final destination. It's the new heavens and the new earth. Do you realize what that means? It means that this earth is not some cosmic hotel room to where we don't have to be concerned with the mess and the problems that are on it. No, this earth is part of our home. It's part of our home. And because it's part of our home, we should feel a burden of responsibility to undermine the mess and the brokenness as we live in it right now by showing outward compassion. This is what Jesus saved us for. You see, Jesus saved us from going to hell after we die, but he also saved us for blessing this world so that we could minimize the hell that people are going through now before they die. And when you do not recognize that Jesus' salvation encompasses those two ideas, you will have a narrow understanding 
A narrow-minded understanding of who Jesus is, which means you do not know Jesus at all. If you know a partial Jesus, you don't know the full Jesus, that means you don't know the real Jesus. This was the reason for John's narrow-mindedness, and this is also the reason for many Christians today being narrow-minded when it comes to Jesus. Now, with all that said, what are some practical lessons that we can take away from what we're learning so far in this text? Well, to answer, let me go to my next point. Some practical lessons we can take away from John's narrow-mindedness. There are many Christians today who think that the only thing that we as a church should primarily and exclusively be focusing on is evangelism. Now, I'm not saying evangelism is a bad thing. In fact, next week's sermon is on evangelism, okay? But the fact of the matter is most Christians in the evangelical world says evangelism is the only and therefore exclusive focus of the church today. Which is simply another way of saying tell people what Jesus' death on the cross saved them from, namely Escape from hell. But as I have argued today, that is not the only reason why Jesus died on the cross. Because salvation is not simply being saved from going to hell after we die. It's also being saved for blessing the people of the world who are going through hell right now before they die. You see, hell is not only a problem that people have to face after death. You see, hell is stubborn. Hell is impatient. Hell is intruded into this world right now where many people today are going through it in the form of hunger, homelessness, racism, slavery, oppression. And we as God's people, we should be against hell wherever and whenever it's found. We should be against hell for people after they die. And we should be against hell for people suffering through it now before they die. Right? Jesus has come to save us from hell. Both hell after death and hell now through the work of God's people in the form of outward compassion. That is what he is teaching us today. In fact... If you want to ensure that the people going through hell now don't end up in the hell after their death, one of the best ways to help them out of both of those conditions is by showing our compassion now. Listen to how one pastor puts it, Chris Six. He says this, if you ever tried to persuade someone to believe in Jesus, you've engaged in what is known as apologetics. The work of apologetics is to remove obstacles to a person's faith. Traditionally, apologetics has attempted to answer intellectual doubts. It's a ministry using words. But many other people, perhaps most people in the world today, face other obstacles to faith. Pain, hardships, suffering, persecution. They are not interested in an intellectual argument for the existence of God because they are too distracted by their child's illness, the lack of clean water, or their poverty and oppression. They will probably have a hard time believing that God is compassionate until we show them some compassion. Our message about God's compassion will lack credibility if we preach to people's minds and ignore the pain in their bodies and hearts. If we begin instead with people's emotional and material needs, we open the door to talk about their spiritual and relational needs. Yes, we must testify to the character and nature of God. We must proclaim the gospel. But sometimes it's best to start with deeds rather than words. To show first and then tell. What does this guy say? He's saying being outwardly compassionate, excuse me, is not an extracurricular activity for the Christian. It's not a special passion for a select few in the church like the Mercy Committee or the social justice team in a local church. Jesus is saying that if you really claim to know me, you also have to realize that what's important to me is not simply that you avoid hell after you die, 
but that you as my followers will alleviate the hell that people are going through now before their death by being outwardly compassionate. This is what Jesus is trying to teach John and what he's trying to teach all of us. Outward compassion is one of the core pillars, core values of the church that follows Jesus Christ. A church that just says, you know, I don't really care about this social justice stuff. I don't really care about feeding the homeless. I don't really care about freeing children from sex trafficking. I don't really care. All I care about is just telling people about how to avoid hell. How is that going to have any weight when you're doing nothing to alleviate the hell they're going through now? How can people even think about the hell to come when they're already suffering through hell now? Jesus is not only relevant for people after they die. Jesus is relevant now. Jesus is not just the Lord of the afterlife. Jesus is Lord of everything. He is the Lord of all. And my challenge to you, NCF, is that as we move forward, that you would get it out of your mind into thinking that mercy, social justice, oh, yeah, that's just something that, you know, those people in our church, some of them like to do, right, to feel good about. No. Outward compassion is one of the hallmarks of our faith. It's what it means to be like Jesus because that is what Jesus did, right? If the ultimate call of discipleship is to conform to him, to be like him, why do you not think that feeding the poor, visiting those in prison, and ministering to the forgotten is not part of what he calls us to do? This is my charge to you, NCF. The work of our compassion is as important to you as the work of evangelism is important to you. Get that through your heads. Because if you do, then you will know the real Jesus, which means you will have a greater understanding of Jesus than even someone the likes of John the Baptist never knew. Listen again to what Jesus says in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that if you recognize Jesus' salvation as more than just being saved from, but also being saved for, you will be greater than John the Baptist. That is, your understanding of Jesus will be greater than John the Baptist. That is what he's saying. So here's my challenge to you, NCF. Do you know Jesus? Do you really know him? One of the clearest ways that you can look to as a valid indication of whether or not you really know him is where's your heart, is where's your hands in regards to ministering to the poor, to the hungry, to the oppressed, and to the forgotten. If it is there, you truly are greater than John the Baptist. Let us pray. Father, as we think more and more about what it means to know you, as so many of us claim that we do, God, we pray that we would never have the blind spot that your servant John the Baptist had. Father, we know that <clears throat> you are a God of justice. You are a God who is with the widow and the orphan. And you call your people to be agents of hope. Father, you call us to proclaim the love that you have for your creation that is powerful enough to save them from hell after death. 
But Lord, help us to also remember that your love is still powerful enough to deal with the hell that people are going through now before their death. Enable us as a church family to come together and with our hearts and with our ingenuity and with our resources, do what we can to the people around us so that we can be outwardly compassionate. Father, I firmly believe that you've called this congregation, as you do every congregation that bears the name of your son, to be outwardly compassionate. Father, I pray that it would not just be in words printed on a, on a poster board saying that we are, but that it would be expressed in the very lives of your people who make up this body. May we truly be an outwardly compassionate church because it is made up of Christians, individual Christians, who have outwardly compassionate hearts. Would you enable us to truly grow up in the gospel so that we can go out with the gospel? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But to the rest of you, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.